One-Hit Wonders. These are bands that are known for one song that was massively successful, and yet the rest of their body of work typically goes unremembered. Today we're going to talk about a band that falls into this trap, but Jordan and I are here to convince you otherwise. I smell sex and candy here. Who's that lounging in my chair? Who's that casting devious stares in my direction? Speaking of sex and maybe candy, I don't know. Transitions are hard. Anyway, you're listening to Sounds Good to Us. I'm Gregory Hill. And I'm Jordan Stone. This is a podcast where two friends of over 20 years pick one album each week and talk about why it's awesome to us, even in the outside chance that you might not agree with us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can listen to us wherever you get podcasts, and you can enjoy us in your heart. Today, we'll be talking about an album that I think both Jordan and I believe deserves much, much more than one hit wonder status that it currently gets. I think, personally, and we'll talk about this, that it's the most underrated album of the 90s, and Jordan and I hope that we can convince you to give it the respect that it deserves beyond the smash single that I'm sure all of you know. So Jordan, I think that most people are familiar with Sex and Candy, but I would assume that only the most hardcore music fans know anything about Marcy Playground in total. Can you give us a background about the band? Yeah, so Marcy Playground consisted of three members at the time of this album's recording. John Wozniak on lead vocals and guitar, Dylan Keefe on bass and backing vocals. He was then replaced by original member Jared Kotler in 1996, and Dan Reiser on drums and backing vocals, who was not an original member of the band and is no longer with them. John Wozniak, the lead singer, is from Minneapolis, But the band met and started playing gigs in New York City. They then signed to Capitol Records in 1995. Marcy Playground is named after the Marcy Open Grade School in Minneapolis, where lead singer John Wozniak attended. Influences for Marcy Playground include David Bowie, Paul Simon, Neil Young, Van Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, Nirvana, Wham, yes, Wham, and the Beatles, which who isn't influenced by the Beatles, let's be honest. I'm not. Marcy Playground, this album was their first album. And since then, they have released three other albums, Shapeshifter, MP3, and Leaving Wonderland in a Fit of Rage. The ages of the band members when this album was released, John was 26, Dylan was also 26, and we don't know how old Dan was. The internet could not provide that information. He could be any age, from zero to 100. <laughs> Who knows? Now that we know a little bit more about Marcy Playground, Gregory, what can you tell us about the album's production release? Yeah, so this was released in the winter of 1997 on February 25th. It was recorded at the Sabella Recording Studio in Rosslyn, New York, which is a village on Long Island near New York City. The genre, some could say that it's alternative rock. Certainly, this is the peak of alternative rock. It's heyday, so to say. Or you could call it post-grunge, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Length here, it's a pretty efficient album, 34 minutes and 27 seconds. Producer is John Wozniak, which we've talked about many times on this podcast, that we love it when the artist is the producer or a producer or gets a producer credit on the album. In this case, John Wozniak is the only producer credit on the album, which we'll probably talk about influences how this album came out. 
And then there were four singles, Poppies, which is the first song on the album, St. Joe and the School Bus, Sex and Candy, and then Sherry Fraser. Sex and Candy being the obvious hit of those four. This is a top heavy band, which is why they continue to get the moniker, if they're remembered at all, as a one-hit wonder, which we hope to dispute today. So, Jordan, Sex and Candy is one of the biggest hits of the 90s, just full stop. I think you would agree with that. Yes, for sure. But how, how has this album sold itself over the years? How has it done in the marketplace? Not bad. It spent 41 weeks on the Billboard chart, which for an album with one hit is pretty impressive. It peaked at 21 on April 3rd of 1998. And on that date, the Titanic soundtrack was number one. And I, I had forgotten that that soundtrack was such a big deal. First movie I saw in the theater with nudity. I, I like the, the qualifier there. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that. But yeah, I also so own that soundtrack. Who didn't? Yeah, it takes us back to that time when soundtracks mattered, yep. which is, is weird to think about. This album did go platinum in 1997, selling 1.5 million copies. And that's just from one song, let's be honest. This yep. album is really good, and I'm sure maybe word got around that the album was good and not just one good song. But the fact that it sold 1.5 million copies for basically one song is impressive. When we talk about 1997, we're talking about going to the store and buying an album conceivably for one song. Singles, you know, for those of you who weren't around during the CD era, you could buy a single, which would usually have one to four songs on it, and it would be much cheaper, right? We're talking oh, yeah. five bucks probably, whereas an album could cost as much as 20. But I'm sure you bought albums for just one song, right, back then? I did, but I didn't like it. I mean, at some point, you've got too many CDs. <laughs> just for it to have Fair. one or two songs on it wasn't worth it at that point. Yeah, because you're carrying around a 500-disc binder, yes. right? Yeah, you might as well buy the whole CD. Sure. So, Greg, how was this album critically received? It'd be generous to say that it was mixed. It wasn't universally panned, but it also wasn't universally beloved. And in the middle, you have some sort of hedging of bets and then even some mocking, which we're going to talk a little bit about. I mean, this, like I said, this was mixed to be nice. All Music has is a three and a half out of five, which is not too far afield from other albums we've talked about on this podcast and that we love. New Musical Express had it a 7 out of 10. Pitchfork with a 7.6 out of 10. Again, much higher rating than how they thought of Kings of yeah. Leon's Only by the Night album that we did on a recent episode. And then Rolling Stone has it as a 2.5 out of 5. So again, pretty mixed. I want to go through some of these and, and talk about some of the themes that we're seeing. All Music Stephen Thomas, Earl Wine said, that only a handful of the album's tracks are even close to as memorable as Sex and Candy. And added that those moments are what make Marcy Playground a promising, albeit imperfect, debut. My take here, Jordan, is that I think it's incredibly unfair to even talk about the other songs in the context of Sex and Candy, which was a breakout hit and one of the most important singles of the 90s. And by most important, I mean like it was in the cultural consciousness it's you know it drove the platinum selling of this album so i think it's a little bit unfair to compare any of the other songs to sex and candy it'd be like comparing any other player on every team that lebron james has ever yeah. been on i don't necessarily disagree with mr earl wine's review it's just to your point comparing it to all of the other tracks to sex and candy is not fair it's a strange complaint i, I guess is my point robert Criscow of Criscow's consumer guide called this album a dud. He said, a bad record whose details rarely merit further thought. 
as two people who've spent 20 hours listening to Marcy Playground this week, yeah, a handful of hours preparing for this podcast, and then us recording this podcast, we obviously fucking disagree. I think that this album deserves further thought, and I think that it's quite good. Chuck Eddy of Rolling Stone said that the musicianship of this album was terrible, and quote, it sets icky new standards for commercial post-alternative callowness. I wonder what Chuck Eddy thinks of Kurt Cobain's musicianship. That would be my question, Tim, because Kurt Cobain is famously not good at guitar. Sure. But he's Kurt Cobain. It's fine. My answer to to this one is, who cares? Well, yeah. And and the other point is, you know, this is, I think we'll talk about the 90s. For those of you who weren't of age or consciousness in this section of the 90s, we were talking about, to me, it's like, it kind of starts with Heather's the movie. And again, this is like seeing the past just through pop culture, which is what we tend to do. But like, especially Slackers, which is a movie that about a generation that predated us, right? We grew up in yeah. the 90s, even though we were born in the 80s, but we were not, we're not Gen X. And so when I think about this disillusionment and just too cool for school attitude, it's almost like they're saying, well, because Nirvana was first, you know, any of Kurt Cobain's shortcomings as musician were artistic. Whereas at this point, we're too self-conscious at the point we get to Marcy Playground and post-grunge. So therefore, it can't be good. Dan Weiss of LA Weekly deemed it the 12th worst album of the 1990s, which fuck that take. Oh, come I, I, there's, on. First of all, 12th, like even <laughs> at the point where there's no way it's the 12th worst album of the 1990s, it's just like you can tell that they, Dan was smiling when he wrote this review. Yeah. Aside from the singles Sex and Candy and St. Joe on the School Bus, the album is folksy, opiate obsessed bullshit. Opiate well, like the drug? Yeah, there is two songs. To be fair to Dan, there are two songs and other references throughout the album yeah, opium. around opium. I mean, obviously. But Poppies also is about you know opium. Dan was not pulling punches. And then lastly, James Wisdom, who had, I think, my favorite review of the album. You can tell that James is struggling with the fact that he shouldn't like this record. Working for Pitchfork, right? And so he says, Goofy, think vocals that sound like Frank Black, who famously picks these lead singer, and lyrics that reminisce of XTC. Goofy, right? Possibly irritating. So why has it been on in my room for the last five days straight? Important question. If it's so bad, why is he listening to it so much? It's mellow, yeah, and I like mellow sometimes, but it's goofy. And mellow, what a battle. Goofy or mellow? Perhaps I can try to resolve the issue. And I think this is like the core review for me after reading the reviews for this album is that I think a lot of people had trained themselves at this stage to think that they can't like this album. I agree. Right? Regardless of how they think about it. So Jordan, we started this podcast with, we want to convince the listeners that this album merits another listen. After reading those reviews of people who are probably much smarter than us, the question is, are we wrong? Why do we love this album so much? Even when critics just range from dismissing it to openly mocking it. So we're going to dig into that today. Before we get into some of that, I want to start from the very beginning, Jordan. Where were you when you first heard Marcy's Playground by Marcy's Playground? When I think about this album, it takes me straight back to 97 and 98. This was, for me, the first years that I'm really getting into music. It's sixth grade, the first year of middle school. I'm starting to like girls. Clicks are starting to form at school. Had my first girlfriend, in quotes. I'm using air quotes on that one. Yeah, I was actually curious about why that was in quotes in the start notes. I know. I mean, a girlfriend in sixth grade doesn't really count, I don't think. 1997, it was also memorable just in general. I remember the first episode of South Park coming out in 1997 in August. I'll never forget discovering South Park. So you've got this 
combination of starting to discover and loving of music with South Park, which is one of the best shows of our lifetime. When I think of this album, I think of 11-year-old me. It's a random Saturday, and I can guarantee you I was sitting in my room either watching South Park or listening to this album. That's how much I loved it. And hearing this album for the first time was memorable because we're kids, and specifically the song Sex and Candy. It's obvious you're going to talk about it. The word sex is used throughout the song, and it's not edited. So when Mm -hmm. it was on the radio, they didn't edit out sex. It said sex and candy. Mm -hmm. Never forget uh, hearing sex and candy for the first time. Riding in the car with my friends and the mom's driving. I'm in the back. I even remember what road we were on specifically Mm -hmm. in Nashville at the time. The exact moment I heard sex and candy. It Mm -hmm. is such a unique song it sounds cool he sings like john mccray the lead singer Mm -hmm. of cake and we have done an entire episode on cake's fashion nugget go listen to it we are massive cake fans greg and i and he kind of sings like john mccray does it's so sarcastic and i love it you realize this is much more than just a one-hit wonder and a Mm -hmm. bunch of other subpar tracks or something this is special And so I started to listen to the songs around Sex and Candy and started to realize how great this album was. And that started uh, my love for this album that no one else that I personally know besides you, Greg, likes. Well, it's so funny that we have very, very similar origin stories with this. As I remember also very specifically, the first time I heard it, I was in my mom's minivan driving home for school. And it it came on the alternative rock radio station in Wichita, Kansas. We, we lived there for a couple of years before moving to Nashville when I was younger. I was in fifth grade. And when the song came on, the first time I heard it, which was a bit rare, typically the first time you hear a song is on MTV, but in the radio, you know, it came on and he said sex. My mom didn't say anything, but I could tell that she was uncomfortable with the word sex, right? Which obviously meant that I immediately loved this song because it was something that I assumed my parents didn't like. And I was not a rebellious child, but I found these little moments to at least feel like I was rebellious or cool. I just, to your point, I loved how weird the song was. Not just Sex and Candy, which from the research, I think he he derived from a story that like either an ex-girlfriend in college or a friend walked into a dorm room and said, it smells like sex and candy in here. And he kind of took that when he later on wrote the song. But it's just a weird sounding song and weird both in the it's eccentric, but also it sounded very different than what other music that I was listening to at that time. I remember listening to Nirvana and seeing the Nirvana music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit and feeling very self-consciously like I wasn't cool enough to like Nirvana. I felt like I was perfectly cool enough to like Marcy Playground. It like was right at my wheelhouse. And at this same time, you know, my favorite albums are are mostly like rap albums, Cake, Weezer. These are mostly albums made by people who are not cool. And this immediately was something that it felt edgy, but it also felt safe to me. All right. So this is a long time ago, but see if you remember this. Where did you buy this album in 1997? I can tell you with great certainty is one of two places. The Best Buy in Cool Springs in a Nashville Mm -hmm. suburb or right down the street at the Cool Springs Galleria, there was a record store in the mall. And that's Mm -hmm. the two places I would go to look for albums. I can't say for sure it was one of those two. Where did you buy it? 
it's funny because if it would have been two years later for me, I would have had the exact same answer. At yeah. this point, I hadn't moved to Tennessee yet. And so mine, I know for a fact, was at the Town East Mall in Wichita, Kansas at a Sam Goody. I should have bought Sam Goody stock at that point. I'm sure like you were buying multiple albums a month at that point. And I, you know, this was a struggling period of time for me musically because I couldn't purchase parental guidance CDs when it came to wanting to procure my favorite artist, Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die, a couple years earlier, I had to kind of go underground for that shit, right? But thankfully, whenever you would hear a, a song on the radio that you loved or saw a song that you loved on MTV, the most moment of delight for me was that it wasn't parental guidance, so I could just walk in and buy it because they, would, they wouldn't even sell it to you. And so I was able to easily buy this CD and immediately went home and listened to it. What do you think struck you about this album when you first listened to it? Why do you think you liked it at first? I think it starts with the album art, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. It is so weird, and it, the album art draws you in in a weird 90s way. When you walk in and you buy that CD at the store, and you see that album art, you're like, I want to hear the rest of what that is. And I'm going to walk you through a little bit here what it was like to discover a CD in the 90s. Spoiler alert, it wasn't a TikTok video. The way it would work is you like the song Sex and Candy. You heard it on the radio, right? You put the CD in. The first track is Poppies. Really good song. I'm like, okay, this is, this is solid, cool song, but I'm waiting for Sex and Candy. So Sex and Candy is track two. Now you've heard the song you've heard a million times on the radio and you're like, I love it, it's amazing. And then the track automatically goes to track three. Mm -hmm. Right. So now you're on ancient walls of flowers, which is also a good song. Mm -hmm. And this is ha what happens when you're discovering music at this time with CDs as you're not accidentally listening to the other songs, but you're kind of forced to at this time. Yep. And then you keep going. And 30 minutes later, you've heard a great album with no skips and you're, mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I love this album has one hit that I knew. And now I appreciate the whole thing. That's how this album drew me in. I love it. For me, it was Poppies. I, I think, obviously, Sex and Candy was the reason I bought the album, but the reason I fell in love with the album was just the sound of the guitar. Again, it was like, it was a hard-driving sound. I loved the sound of that guitar and knew that I would probably like the rest. We'll talk about later that my favorite song on this album is actually Vampires of New York, which is completely different than the rest of the album. But Poppies was the first hook to give the rest of it a chance. And then, I, like I said earlier, I think this album, while it was very difficult for me as a 11 year old to actually identify with any of the things that Wozniak was singing about here. It definitely felt like an album that I could love. And that was enough for me. I just, it, it became a part there. All right. So next question, Jordan, what does this album just mean? It's important. It has its place for me. It's not a starter. So I have a baseball team. I don't have a baseball Let's say I had a baseball <laughs> team. <laughs> I'm rich, bitch. For a baseball team. <laughs> the LA Dodgers, heard of them? All right. So let's say I had a baseball team and I've got players on the baseball team. This is not necessarily a starter. It's not an album that I'm sending out there and starting my baseball team. It comes off the bench and it pinch hits. This player can run fast, hits over 250, very reliable, but it's not a starter on the team. This album fits that. So it's important to me and I love mm -hmm. this album, but it's not a critical album to me in music history and that's okay. I talked to uh, yeah. people today knowing yeah. we were going to record and I said, what are your thoughts on Marcy Playground's <laughs> debut album? I'm like, oh, is that the, th this is what most of the responses came down to. Who's Marcy Playground? Was one response <laughs> that I got. A second one was, oh, that's the band who did Sex and Candy, right? 
and then the third was, you know, basically some variation of the first two. And I remember listening to the album, but I don't remember much about it. Yep. I don't know anyone who loves this album, and I love this album. Yep. And agreed. so for me, like, this is one of my favorite rock albums in the 90s, and I'm not being hyperbolic there. <laughs> like, it is one of my favorite rock albums in the 90s. This album means as much to me as any Green Day album, any Radiohead album, any Foo Fighters album, any Weezer album, or any Cake album from this decade. And arguably, it means more to me than any other rock band's albums from this period. And I'd be a poser if I said, oh, yeah, totally. I was there. And I was there when Nirvana came out, but I didn't like Nirvana that much as a kid. I didn't like REM. I didn't like Soundgarden. And I like Pavement now, but I didn't like or even who know who Pavement was then. And you could argue late 80s band, Pavement, whatever, but they were releasing albums in the 90s. Lastly, to your point, I've always had like a chip on my shoulder about this album. It's my own personal hipster experience that I cherish. Oh, you've heard of Sex and Candy? What about the Vampires of New York? And so this, you know, I worked at a radio station in college that we've talked about, and I would talk to people about this album, and they hated it. And would you play to, the other tracks? Uh, on my show, for sure. Hell yeah, yes. and people would make fun of me for it. And, and, and so, you know, it's, it's back to kind of the earlier question. I hate to draw assumptions about critics or about cooler people in music than us, but I do think there's something to the fact that people don't want to say or admit that they like this album. And maybe we're wrong, but I, I, I do think there's something here. And, it, and even if there's not, it means something to me personally. What memories do you have of, of listening to this album? Walk me through you as an 11-year-old. Do you have any other memories of listening to it? The one I'll start with is whenever I hear Gone Crazy, that track specifically on the album. It makes me think of my 1997 AOL screen name, which is really embarrassing. I know if you're listening right now, if you had an AOL screen name, guaranteed you had one that was embarrassing. It was Gone Crazy 85, and the letters were alternating in capital letters, of course. course, And I spelled crazy with a K. Obviously. (laughs) That is so awesomely embarrassing. Is the 85 uh, your birth year? Is that why? Yeah, that's why. Okay. Gone crazy 85. That one didn't last long. I think after a while, I was like, that's, that's embarrassing. I grew out of it. But I will, what I will say about this album, as far as memories of listening to it, especially as an adult, this is one of those albums that you listen to the entire thing, front to back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't pull up the album and pick a song. Yep. Which I do for most albums. Like, oh, I want to hear a song from this specific album. I'll pull it up on Spotify. I'll hit play on that song. Mm-hmm. I start at track one and I listen to the whole thing all the way through. And at this point in my life, that is rare. Mm-hmm. So this album has that effect on me where I pull it up and I want to hear the entire thing. You mentioned South Park earlier and I have such a soft spot in my head and heart for this period of time because at 11 this is when you start to really associate yourself aspirationally with being a teenager right and you start really wanting to like things that older kids like and also really starting to carve out your own independence from your parents at least that was my experience so south park was that edgy thing all the kids are into it and this is like a generational moment and then so while i don't have any specific memory your call out sort of reminds me of sitting in my room, spending a lot of time alone in my room. And before, you know, you're kind of hanging out in the communal areas of your house. But at this point, I have my own computer in my room. I have my own TV with cable in my room. And the biggest deal was I had my own phone line in my room, needed for the computer because this was early internet, 
but also so I could talk to people, right? Which no one fucking called me, but at least I had the phone. I would sit in my room and I remember listening to, and I'm going to do some like this period shout outs, especially this album. And then Hello Nasty by the Beastie Boys and playing Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2, which is a Star Wars game on Microsoft The Zone, dialing in playing online or playing something like Legend of Zelda on N64 in my room. That was really, 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 really special to me at this period of time is being able to listen to my own music in my own room on my own stereo by doing my own shit. And that might be what factors into me loving this album so much because I loved it at a time in which I really loved my life. But, you know, again, nothing stands out specifically, but that period of time stands out very strongly in my memories. All right. So let's dig into the album itself. Get us started with what's just your favorite thing about this album. 90s rock is my favorite subgenre by far. And this album bleeds 90s rock. Just the sound of that distorted guitar is, is exactly what you think when you think 90s rock guitar. His voice is somber and subtle. It's very Gen X. The way he sings is very Gen X in his style and his delivery and all those things. Billie Eilish sings with the kind of somber, subtle voice that he does mm-hmm. and that's cool that's it's, it's cool to see it coming back which the 90s is on its way back i think so you've got uh, somber and you've got fun at the same time which is mm-hmm. is really a great combination marcy playground has been quoted as saying the songs are supposed to be childlike and fun mm-hmm. and nursery rhyme ish we'll get into when we talk about the tracks that there are specific nursery rhymes actually in the album, but they're supposed to be fun. And an album like this isn't supposed to be good, but it is. Yep. It just is. It, 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 for some reason it works and what they did, they executed it so perfectly well. I like talented people who don't take themselves seriously. So it should come to no surprise that I like this album and also cake Weezer and green day in that regard. Right? So this, this album isn't afraid to rock, and it does in moments like pop, the beginning of Poppies, rocks hard. And I maybe cool people make fun of that song. I don't know, but that song rocked hard, and I still think it rocks now. But it can also sound very sweet, like in Sherry Frazier. I like the dynamicy of this album, and my favorite thing ultimately is that they were not self-consciously cool, or maybe they were so self-consciously cool that they were able to produce a piece of art that didn't come across as self-consciously cool. I don't know where their intentions were, yeah. but that's my favorite thing about the album. On the flip side, what's something you would change about it? Every episode we've done, every album we've done, I have an answer for this question. Mm-hmm. For this one, I don't really. The answer is nothing. And I hate to say that. I tried to come up with something of substance. Sure. What I came up with, though, was that more people would listen to it and appreciate this album. I wish yep. I could talk to more people about it, bring it up at parties, <laughs> but no one knows it except you. So you and I just have to be like, Hey, listen to Marcy Prager on the day. Yeah, of course. So yeah, I'm peddling the same <laughs> bullshit takes for 20 exactly. years. You know? yeah. So I wish more people would listen to it and appreciate it. That's something I would change. What about you? Yeah, pretty similar. You know, I, here's my hot take. I almost wish that sex and candy didn't exist. And I think ironically, I think a worse or like a replacement level pop song would have been better for Marcy Playground. Now, obviously, this album went platinum. They collected a lot of checks. They still tour. They still have a set of fans who pay them money to receive their services. But I do think that if Sex and Candy wasn't such a breakout hit, they wouldn't have been labeled as one-hit wonders. So obviously, they would not probably make that trade-off. 
but I sort of wish in an alternative universe that Sex and Candy didn't exist. So who's the target audience of this album? Who do you think it's made for? This album is a product of its time. It ages pretty well, but I think it's for 90s music fans specifically. And like I said, I think it's aged well, but if I were introducing 90s music to someone younger and they were like, hey, I'm trying to get into 90s. What should I start with? Where should I go? What direction should I go in? And in no way, shape or form am I starting with Marcy Playground's self-titled album. Although I do love it, it's way too much of a deep cut of an album (laughs) to start Mm -hmm. with. If you're a fan of The Killers or Fallout Boy or Coldplay or something like that, I'm not going to be like, oh, you like them? You should check out Marcy Playground's debut album. It's a very weird diversion, a detour off of the main path of 90s music, although it's quintessential 90s at the same time. It fits at the time it was released. It was released at the perfect time. That's who and what it was made for. Yeah, it makes sense. I think even after doing the research, it's hard to tell. I, I, I don't think this album has the same audience as, as the straight up grunge bands of the early 90s or even some of the 2000s bands that you mentioned. I Because we haven't met any Marcy Playground fans, it's hard for me to conceptualize what a Marcy Playground fan is. I, I know that answer for Weezer. I know that answer for Cake. I We've met those fans. I've never met a Marcy Playground fan other than us. So I do think that it's like a very specific slice of the 90s, kind of like what you said, where irreverence was was pretty cool. And this album never feels like it's trying too hard. That, to me, is the general vibe of this portion of the decade. You come out from the 80s with like excess and decadence, and you have this reaction to that. And then we're starting to get in the tail end of the 90s to where we bleed into pop. You have to also remember the context about this, is that this album came out right before pop smashed right we're talking about britney we're talking about the backstreet boys we're talking about nsync this is pre all of that where rock was on the top of the hill so i guess this album was made for pop fans but it's just it's really hard to tell looking back why do you think it's better than the critics that we read earlier give it credit for being i think any negative reviews of this album completely missed the point In our Kings of Leon episode, we talked about arena rock, big, bold rock music that's meant for an arena. This is garage rock. I want to see Kings of Leon and Coldplay in an arena. I don't want to see Marcy Playground in an arena. Mm -hmm. I want to see this performed in a garage. (laughs) And it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I'd like to see them at a small, intimate concert venue like Exit Inn in Nashville, which is a famous event. Yeah, shout out to Exit Inn in Nashville, which is a great, famous venue, but it's very small. It's all standing room only, maybe a couple hundred people. On that note, the negative reviews miss the point. This is not a Grammy-worthy album. It isn't musically advanced or special, and that's okay. And to me, this album is what I think the Clerks of Rock albums. For those listening (laughs) that don't know, Clerks was a 1994 Kevin Smith low-budget comedy that was filmed in black and white. I think of that perspective is important when discussing the merits of art. When you sit down, you watch Clerks. It's in black and white. It had a very low budget. They weren't trying to make Bridge on a River Kwai here, <laughs> okay? They were, they were trying to make Clerks. And Marcy Playground was just trying to make Marcy Playground's debut album. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is a 
big reason why we started this podcast. It's the podcast for the people. We're not the Grammys. We're just talking about music that sounds good to us. I like I like how you brought that all the way back, and it's kind of like when you hear the title of a movie in the movie. Yeah, you um, pointed out like the the Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's pointing at the yeah. screen. It's great. I love that you mentioned Clerks, and I never ever in a million years would have made that connection, and I am jealous that you did because it's perfect. It's hard not to think about Soul Asylum when I think about Clerks because Soul Asylums can't even tell was on the soundtrack for Clerks. There's actually that music video is on the Clerks set. And Soul Asylum and Clerks are forever intertwined in my brain. But I think that that Marcy's Playground is, is, is an, a very interesting comparison. And you and I actually became friends because of Kevin Smith's style of comedy, which questionable whether or not it holds up. But at the time, you and I were very happy. And the first time we actually worked together, quote unquote, was on an English project discussing Chasing Amy. And I think it's this, this irreverence, this we're so smart and we don't care attitude that we really gravitated towards in the 90s with art, whether it be music or whether it be movies. And this album, like Clerks, it never feels important, right? It never feels like this is art. It's just consistently good. To your point, it makes the choices that it makes, and it's good. And there's no way to overrate it. But I think because of all of that, it's consistently underrated. It didn't start any new trend. It doesn't have any records associated with it. It didn't win a bunch of awards. People have almost completely forgot about it. But I think that's unfair. Let's move into what we're tentatively calling the sound sommelier. Jordan, you're going to walk us through, not unlike a sommelier who would pick out the notes of a wine for you. Mm -hmm. I want you to pick out the notes of this album and give us some comparisons. All right, someone comes up to me and says, I love Marcy Playground's debut album. What mm -hmm. should I go listen to now? Here's mm -hmm. what I say. First of all, Flagpole Sitta by Harvey Danger. Mm -hmm. If you're listening mm -hmm. to this podcast and that is the first time you've ever heard of Flagpole Sitta, pause and go play it. Great 90s song. Just so, so good and very similar to this album. All the Pain Money Can Buy is an album by Fastball, and I wore that album out. As much as I mm -hmm. probably listened to this one, I listened to that album. It had one hit on it called The Way mm -hmm. by Fastball, which you've probably heard. Really, really good album that I'd recommend to you as well. And the last two here, we have to go with the Cake album. So I'm going to go mm -hmm. with their first Agreed. one, Motorcade of Generosity. We did a Fashion Nugget episode. That's their second album with The Distance and really when they made their breakthrough. But I think Motorcade of Generosity fits this album more closely. And then Pocket Full of Kryptonite by Spin Doctors. Great. Love it. Yep. A uh, couple few hits on that one. I got to check it out. Similar style to this. You would like that if you liked this. Greg, what did you come up with? Yeah, I, I kind of went with the time period here and then one outlier. So... Number one, I would assume that most people listening have listened to more Everclear than they have Marcy's Playground For sure. on like a song basis. But if you hadn't, Sparkle and Fade is something I would recommend, possibly with a medium rare steak, pushing the sommelier metaphor a little bit too far there. Foo Fighters, the color and the shape. Post-grunge here is the affinity. I think that Foo Fighters are a post-grunge band. I believe that Marcy's Playground is properly captured as a post-grunge band. And I think that those two albums, The Color and the Shape specifically, have more in common than they do not. You might possibly disagree with this as a massive Third Eye Blind fan, but I think specifically Thanks for Everything has some similarities to this album. The Butthole Surfers, who probably do not get much thought ownership in this period of time, but Electric Larry Land, which 
the album cover itself is probably the most memorable al- album yeah. cover probably in the 90s it's a picture of a cartoon shoving a pencil in their ear weens the mollusk i mentioned soul asylum earlier i think grave dancers union is something that you would like pavement you know i i think for me the only reason i, I pick this out is because when i listen to a song like spit on a stranger it's one of my favorite pavement songs the vibe reminds me a lot of the best of this album with Marcy Playground. And same thing goes with the Flaming Lips transmissions from the Satellite Heart, which has probably, I would assume to be top three most famous Flaming Lips song, She Don't Use Jelly. And that song also like this kind of irreverence and humor, but rocking qualities and musicianship. I I don't know how many people have ever compared the Flaming Lips to Marcy's Playground, but I think that comparison makes sense, at least to my brain. The last is you mentioned Exit In, which triggered... In my mind, because we saw Phantom Planet at Exit In, and I actually think, and this is my hot take, that if you ask me to defend, my opinion might fall apart. I think that Phantom Planet is the Marcy's Playground of the 2000s, not only because they're both sort of one-hit wonders that don't deserve to be, because I love Phantom Planet and all of their music is great, but also because they have this similar vibe where you could see them as being funny or being serious, and it doesn't matter which end you fall on let's talk about the album art what did you find looking at it and how do you like it it's so weird and quirky and just there's almost no album cover like this and i always loved that about it and it drew me in and even when i pull it up in 2021 on my iphone i'm looking at that album cover i still think it's just crazy and weird and i love it and it perfectly fits the music yeah it's weird and if you look at it quickly it's not that weird but when you stare into its eyes it's weird. It's also really 90s. It kind of just gives me this creepy vibe. I, I, For some reason, if I'm doing free association, the words that are coming to mind are like Silence of the Lambs and for some reason, Seven. If David Fincher was doing the art direction for an album cover, I think it would look like this because if you stare at it intensely, is it a severed head that's floating in the middle with these sort of you know, it's just strange. So I don't hate it. I'm not printing it out at 11 and putting it on my wall. And I'm, I'm definitely not doing that now, but I'm glad that it exists. So let's, let's talk about the songs. We're going to do a new segment here called the track rundown, where I'm going to ask Jordan to as quickly as possible, say one thing about each track. Jordan, let's are you ready it. to I be efficient? Ready. Track one poppies go. Great kickoff to the album, and I can't imagine any other song leading the album off. Agreed. Track two, Sex and Candy. One of the best alt-rock songs of the 90s. Facts. Track three, Ancient Walls of Flowers. Really cool guitar solo, and the guitar solo is almost classical guitar-esque, which I like. Hmm. Track four is St. Joe on the School Bus. The most 90s sounding song on the album. If this song had clothes, it'd be wearing a flannel shirt, washed jeans, and some Doc Martens. Love it. Track five, A Cloak of Elvenkin. Slow and not amazing, but it fits. This is one of my favorite songs in the album. Track six, Sherry Frazier. It's a cool song. It's also a true story about his high school girlfriend. And I wonder what Sherry Frazier thinks about this song because he did not change the name. If it's anything like the reviews, it was mixed. Track seven, Gone Crazy. It's like a weird nursery rhyme. It's fun and weird at the same time. Agreed. Track eight, Opium. My least favorite song on the album and the only one I sometimes skip because it's just too slow. 
Yeah, track nine, One More Suicide. Very movie-esque. It gives me the feeling of a true crime movie or a TV show that could be a theme song for. Yeah, David Fincher extended his art direction to the yes. song from the album cover. <laughs> track 10, Dog and His Master. My favorite song on the album. I love the part, One Little, Two Little, Three Little Idiots. I loved that part as a kid, and I still love it now. Agreed. It's my third favorite song on the album. Track 11, The Shadow of Seattle. I like this song a lot, but it almost sounds like a different band in parts of the song. It has a very Pearl Jam sound. I wonder if that was intentional at your point, but yeah, I, I get that vibe too. And then yeah. track 12, my favorite song on the album, The Vampires of New York. Really, really solid closing song for this album. It's simple and it's almost like an outro. It's kind of taking you away from the album in a slow and nice way. I like it. We got it through and that was fast. Let's talk about some playlists, Jordan. What are some playlists that you put sex and, or sorry, you put sex on? <laughs> what are some playlists, Jordan, that you put Marcy Playground songs on? Yeah, so the approach I take for this category is it's playlists that I already have that existed before doing this episode. Obviously, Sex and Candy goes on my 90s rock playlist and should go on any 90s rock playlist that has ever existed Agreed. in the history of the world. I also have a great playlist that I've spent a lot of time on called Best Songs of the 90s You Haven't Heard. Ooh. I made this playlist in 2013. It has three songs from this album. And I point that out because it's the most of any album of the 90s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, St. Mm -hmm. Joe on a School Bus, Sherry Frazier, and Dog and His Master. All three made that playlist. And again, Best Songs of the 90s You Haven't Heard. And no other album, I think maybe even no other album had two songs. So this, this album is so important to me that I, I needed people to hear these more deep tracks on this album. I just love that you're carrying that forward. and We're just constantly prophetizing people that this album is great. I do not have a strong playlist game. Jordan does. Go follow him on Spotify. For me, I make up three bespoke playlists specifically for each episode that I wish I had. First one is called, Who Needs a History Degree When You Can Just Listen to Music? Am I right? The first one, Brighter Than a Thousand Suns by Black Sabbath. By the way, the, the commonality of all these songs is they deal with historical events. Brighter Than a Thousand Suns by Black Sabbath, A Great Day for Freedom to Pink Floyd. Any chance I can put a Pink Floyd song on a playlist, I do. Shout out to Jordan as a big Pink Floyd fan. We Didn't Start the Fire, obviously has to be on this by Billy Joel. American Pie by Don McLean, obviously also. April 29th, 1992 by Sublime. The Ballad of Sacco and Vanzetti by Joan Baez. Uh, Hurricane by Bob Dylan, which was very famous amongst our high school friends. Uh, for some reason, people loved that song in high school. Spanish Bombs by The Clash. Mad City by Kendrick Lamar and poppies from this album would you listen to that playlist absolutely i have some ideas for that one too Ooh, add them in the comments next one is songs by band that are remembered as one hit wonders that shouldn't be because they had other songs that were amazing i'm good at creating fictional playlists not so good at naming them first one that thing you do by the wonders here's my argument dance with me tonight little wild one and all my only dreams are great fucking songs they the are wonders. the oneaters <laughs> fair enough that's the oneaters Stacy's mom, which at some point we will definitely do a F Fountains of Wayne album, but most of you know of Fountains of Wayne because of Stacy's mom, but Radiation Vibe, Mexican Wine, Hey Julie, and pretty much every other song in their catalog is amazing. Please go listen to Fountains of Wayne beyond Stacy's mom. One Headlight by the Wallflowers, I Love Sixth Avenue Heartache, Three Marlenas, and The Difference are all great songs amongst others, so I believe that the Wallflowers should get more cred. Umbop by Hanson. Man from Milwaukee is one of my like probably top 500 songs of all time. I love Man from Milwaukee. So if not just for that, 
Hansen should not be a one-hit wonder. Absolutely, Story of a Girl goes on this by Nine Days, which 257 Weeks is a great song. And then, as I talked about earlier, California by Phantom Planet. Phantom Planet has a song called Always On My Mind, which is one of my probably top 50 songs of all time. They deserve more credit than being a one-hit wonder. And lastly, obviously, Sex and Candy from this album belongs on that playlist. That's a very, very unique idea for a playlist. I want to hear it. Great. I will share it with you if I ever get around to making it. And then lastly, this one is pretty niche, Jordan. It's called Songs About Vampires in New York. All of the songs on the album Modern Vampires of the City by Vampire Weekend, one of my favorite bands. A song called New York Vampires by The Destructors. A song called Vampires of Old New York by Kill Bell. A song called Vampires in New York by That's What You Get and then Vampires of New York from this album. I don't know how many follows that one will get, but it's an attempt. What is the legacy of this album? We've all heard Perception is Reality. Unfortunately, for the legacy of this album, I think that's true. I'm looking out the window, and across the street, there's a packed restaurant. If I went into that restaurant and I asked every single person, what do you think of Marcy's Playground's debut album? I think every single person would either mention Sex and Candy or say they don't like it or have never heard it. And it's honestly a good proxy for how people feel about this album. Sex and Candy is woven into the fabric of the 90s and will always be relevant. I think that song, people just know it. It gets stuck in your, your head and you never forget it. The rest of the album to the rest of the world mm-hmm. is throwaway. With the exception of me, you, and like, you know... Maybe Tyler a, and your a few other Marcy Playground fans, and you know who you are if you're listening right now. We love you. But that's the legacy. Unfortunately, it is. And here's the thing. I hope we've done our albeit small part today to help change that and introduce this great album to the rest of the world. There's two things that come to mind here. One is we talked about the Beastie Boys book, which all of you should go read or listen to. And they were talking about the time pre- streaming. And this is not a old person argument of, oh, the times were better back then. I don't think so. I think the times for listening to music are way better now. The fact that I can listen to anything I want on Spotify is a fucking blessing. But here's the main difference. Back then, when you would buy an album, let's say you either wander into a store and you just buy an album you like based on the cover, which at $20 was quite the investment, or you're buying an album which you've only heard one song like Sex and Candy. And you would go home and you would listen to it. You had to form your own opinion about it. And this is how we develop taste. Now, there's not a single song that I hear in my life, probably, that either Spotify, Jordan, or the internet has told me to already love or hate. True. Right? And all of my tastes now are dependent upon external forces. Well, in 1997, there was a time where I could have taken this album, listened to it, and I had no idea what the rest of the world thought about it. I didn't read reviews at 11 years old, but I had to decide in that moment in time if I thought this album was good or not and why. And I decided at 11 years old, this album was great. And whether or not that was the right decision then, but I still agree with 11-year-old Greg now. I think this album is great. And for me, unfortunately, there's no legacy for this album, as you said. It is wedged between two massive moments in history. You have grunge and hip-hop, both completely changed the musical landscape, and then you have pop. And this album came right in the middle of that and unfortunately has no historical imprint. And I think that's unfair. I really, really, really wish that this would change. Marcy's Playground, 
achieve some higher legacy than they currently have, that would be a dream for me. So give this album another shot. And I, I, I do not think you'll be disappointed. And if you are, let us know why we were wrong. You, you'd be fighting with an 11 year old at that point. <laughs> but you know, let us know. Well, that gets us to the end. And before we say good night and goodbye to the listeners, Jordan, anything you want to bring up here? Yeah. So the best way that you can support us, I'm going to ask you a favor is pull out your mm-hmm. Twitter and Facebook, if you don't mind, Doing it right and now. share with your friends and family that you enjoy the podcast, if you do, of course. Let them know, um, at mention us on Twitter, pod sounds good, at mention us on Instagram, sounds good to us, and just say you love the podcast and recommend it to your friends and family. That's really, at this point, the greatest thing you can do to help us and support the podcast. Agreed. Thank you. See ya. See ya.